wrapping up episode 290 of Monster Kid Radio with a song from the band The Suction Cups. They're based out of Springfield, Illinois. The album is Do They Walk Among Us, and the song is Space Horror. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, surf enthusiast, Monster Kid number one. Well, okay, maybe not Monster Kid number one, but a big old Monster Kid, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited because this week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm going to take you back in time a couple of weekends to the Lovecraft Film Festival. It's the 2016 edition. I've been attending this Lovecraft Film Festival since 2002. I wouldn't miss it for anything. I'm so glad it's happening in October because to me, Halloween doesn't officially start, well, the Halloween month anyway, until I spend three days at the Hollywood Theater in Portland, Oregon, losing my mind, failing my sanity check, and just having a great time with my fellow Lovecraft enthusiasts. Wasn't alone. You're going to hear from Chris McMillan on this podcast because at the end of this episode, Chris and I will talk about our experiences at the Lovecraft Film Festival. But that's at the end. What happens at the beginning? What happens in the middle? Well, I'll tell you. I, once again, had the opportunity to introduce a film at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I introduced the movie The Ass Fix. So I'm going to be playing that introduction as well as a trailer from the movie to kind of give you the flavor of the film. And then, the meat of this episode, a panel that I was able to moderate featuring myself, Chris McMillan, filmmaker Sean Branny, and writer and game designer Kenneth Height. Lovecraft in black and white film. From the program... The description of Lovecraft and Black and White Film. Join the panelists as they discuss a number of class and black and white horror and science fiction films and the Lovecraftian elements and or influence that can be found in them. If you like movies like It, The Terror from Beyond Space, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and The Magnetic Monster, this is the panel for you. I had a lot of fun with that panel, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening to it. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to the aspects. We're going to get to me and Chris rapping about the Lovecraft Film Festival. All of that's happening right after this. On the anniversary of the night they burn Lavinia Morley, Many strange and sinister dreams are experienced. But are they dreams? Or are they the signs of the curse of the Crimson Altar? How are these wild parties and an antique dealer investigating witchcraft connected with this house of horrifying secrets? Get out. Go while you can. What mysteries live within these ancient walls? Who is Robert Manning looking for? Why is he in danger? When will he find the hidden truth? I am Lavinia, mother of the mysteries, keeper of the black secret. Lavinia's influence has spanned the centuries, maintained her innocence up to the very end. They didn't believe her and burned her at the stake. Many people have died mysteriously, horribly. There's always been a link between those who burn Lavinia and those who die. My brother stayed here, didn't he? My brother Peter. Tell me what happened to him! Curse of the Crimson Altar brings together the two masters of horror, Boris Karloff 
Christopher Lee. Mark Eden in his most powerful performance. I know there's something wrong going up in that lodge, and if you're not going to help me, I'm going to do it myself. Barbara Steele as Lavinia, Queen of Terror. Michael Goff as her unwilling slave. And introducing Virginia Wetherill, guest star Rupert Davies, Curse of the Crimson Altar. What ghostly legend was he caught up in? Who was the living link with Lavinia? Why was he tormented by these ghoulish nightmares? Fine. When did this frightening fantasy become startling reality? This is a very deep cut. Do you know it looks as though you've been stabbed? I think I was. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain, and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, Yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. The nights are darker. And night is when it happens in... The Dunwich Horror. Come back, old one. Princes of darkness. And repossess the earth. The Dunwich Horror. Based on H.P. Lovecraft's terrifying tale of those who explore the unspeakable. Starring Sandra D., Dean Stockwell, Academy Award winner Ed Begley, Sam Jaffe. the history of horrendipity written here 
love story of a girl looking to the future and a boy dedicated to the mysteries of the past. He invokes the unspeakable. Yeah. Safa. She invites it. You're one of us now. Depthless paradise of terror, where fear eternal lives. And the dead come to life. I've never heard anything like that. Okay, how you guys doing on Sunday? Free up the microphone. Um, so this is, I don't have a very interesting story, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to welcome you guys to the Aspects. Uh, this has been one of my favorite movies for a long time, uh, and it wasn't. I remember seeing it much like this on a. Uh, uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, I grew up in San Diego um, originally, and uh, on KTLA we used to have like Sunday creature features, and I know that was a thing that played in a lot of the country. Sometimes they would show like Godzilla movies, and sometimes they would show like old Hammer movies. Sometimes they'd show one of each, and those were great days. Um, and uh, that's where I, that's how I first saw the aspects. I'm not stealing any of your material, right? No, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Um, that's how I first saw this film, and it was really quite as a as quite a young boy. It, it, the film was made in 1973, so when it came out, I was only like two. Uh, but uh, it really made an impact on me, and I think it fed into the right part of my brain that also likes H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, so I hope you'll see the connections when you see the film. Uh, how many people have already seen the aspects and are just here for a repeat viewing? Okay, a couple of you. Cool, wow. good movie, right? <laughs> Uh, and I really wanted to sometimes when we're doing the schedule we make a lot of really practical choices but then sometimes I want to do stuff like this where you know I'm playing it on a Sunday afternoon so you guys can see it the same way I saw it when I was a small child um, I just think it's cool to be you know casual and sitting in a theater on a Sunday and watching a movie that could have played on TV when you were kids uh, that's all I really have to say about it with that I'm going to hand it over to uh, uh, Mr. Derek uh, to Mr. Derek, Mr. Derek. Wow. Sir, Sir Cook, <laughs> uh, who, who is the host of uh, Monster Kid Radio. Thank you. Before we get started, I wanted to take a picture of everybody, if that's okay. So, all right, so, uh, you want to get in there, Brian? Okay, ready? <laughs> all, right, here we go. all right, cool. Thank you. <laughs> so, microphone. Thank you, Brian. Give it up to Brian. You know, um, Brian and Gwen, they do a bang-up job. I'm not just saying this because he's in the room. I was going to say this anyway. But they do a bang-up job uh, for all of us Lovecraft fans. And I, I want to give a personal thanks, since you are in the room, for bringing in something a little bit more classic. I'm, I'm the classic monster movie guy. You know, like he said, I produce Monster Kid Radio. Thank you. 
Uh, Monster Kid Radio is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I produce a show in Portland, Oregon-ish, Beaverton, I guess that kind of counts. And I've been going for three and a half years or so. I've got episode 300 coming out in December. Every week we talk about classic monster movies with a variety of different guests, including some people that you may have run into here. Uh, at the festival, I love it, and I love these classic monster retro-type movies. And when you can find an intersection between these types of movies and Lovecraft, I'm there, man. I'm, I'm all there. So Brian mentioned Hammer. This is not a Hammer film. It's about two or three shades away from 1970s Hammer. So, I mean, it's still in that wheelhouse, in that sweet spot, but it's 1970s Hammer. So it's got a nice, lush, uh, very beautifully lit, uh, very beautifully uh produced uh, look uh, to the film. And I think that's kind of by design because the director is a guy by the name of Peter Newbrook. This is the only film that he directed. He was primarily a camera guy. He was a cinematographer. Uh, He actually worked for Hammer. Before Hammer started doing Hammer uh, horror movies, he shot one of the Dick Barton films. They did a series of secret agent type uh, stories and he did the cinematography on that. He also uh, did cinematography on a movie called Corruption, starring Peter Cushing. Again, not a Hammer film, but a very interesting film that was billed as a film not for women. Um, So might be interested in checking that one out later. Uh, This movie itself, it definitely has the Lovecraft connections. I mean, Brian kind of brought it up a little bit. Uh, It's kind of steampunky in spots, but if you watch the movie, and especially pay attention to the lead guy, uh, Sir Hugo, played by Roberts, and I'm going to get it wrong because there's two Roberts in the movie, but it's a Robert something or other. Uh, he, he was a stage actor, classically trained, and he masterfully will take you through his descent into insanity as he's doing something with the asphyx. It sounds like nobody, most people haven't seen the movie, so I don't want to spoil what's happening here, but I will say this. Sir Hugo is in a parapsychological society investigating the ooh, weird stuff, And he has a camera that does very special things and reveals certain things to him and his group and his assistants and his daughter and all this other stuff. And he becomes obsessed with trying to figure out more about what he's captured on the camera lens. And then, well, the movie kind of goes downhill from there. Not downhill in terms of bad movie, but for him. Um, I don't know if this is the kind of movie Lovecraft would like or not. I mean, Lovecraft wasn't a big film guy, but he did like that kind of Victorian England aesthetic, and that's what this movie is. Um, and you can probably find some shades of From Beyond and Reanimator in this and what happens here. Uh, again, pay attention to Sir Hugo. He really carries the movie. Um, you know, he's probably a, a typical Lovecraftian lead character or protagonist. Um, I'm, I'm going to get done. This is not about me. This is about the asphyx. If you do want to talk to me about monsters, I'm around. Uh, MonsterKidRadio.net is where you can find me. I'm on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Facebook, smoke signals. I mean, I'm all over. You can find me pretty much anywhere. So uh, thanks again to Brian for bringing this movie in. Thanks to you guys. And uh, I'm going to go outside and check the photo that I just took to see if there's any smudges on the lens. You, you'll, you'll get that joke later. Thanks again. Thank you, Derek. Now, get ready. The pole's stuck. At the first sign of death, it begins a cry of torment that drives the dying mad. The aspects, more than a myth, more than a maybe. A smudge, and another one here, and finally another here. Gentlemen, what you have seen, what we have recorded, 
is the soul at the moment it departs the body. The Asphinx. More than a myth. More than a maybe. Good grief. I tell you, it saw me. Here is a man a minute from death, without a soul, with only one way back, through the secret of the Asphinx. Train the light on the Asphinx. The force within you that brings insanity at the instant of death. From birthday to death day, it controls the most terrifying moment of your life. Your death, the Asphinx. The Asphinx, more than a myth, more than a maybe. Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. <laughs> You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. The Haunted Palace. You, who find a kind of macabre joyousness in the horrifying, will enjoy yourselves as in ecstasy in The Haunted Palace. Starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. And intriguing Deborah Paget, whose appealing beauty inflames the blood of the bloodless. Charles, please. I... Well, I've been very busy, but I'm back now. Charles. Now, oh, no. have the whole no. night before. No. His violent, no. torturous passions inflict no. both pain and terror. Don Cheney, carrying on a family tradition of masterful motion picture horror, while the strange and feared new master of the haunted palace reaches for the skeleton of one long dead. You see? He's taken her mind, her soul, just like the others. Really, this is I'm entitled to a few small amusements.
I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hey, welcome. How's everybody doing? Yay. You all have your Sunday faces on. I accused Sean of that when you walked in, but it's Sunday, right? Yeah? Indeed. How's everybody holding up? Okay. Awesome. So this is uh, the panel. Uh, Lovecraft and black and white film, basically. Uh, it was a panel that I suggested about uh, looking for Lovecraftian elements in black and white monster movies. Um, and I would like to have the panelists introduce themselves. So why don't we start over here? I'm Sean Branny from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. We made the motion pictures The Call of Cthulhu and The Whisper in Darkness, among other things. I'm, the last I'm Kenneth Height. I'm a primarily a tabletop role-playing game designer, but my film-relevant credits include a book of adventures uh, called Shadows Over Filmland, which I co-wrote with my Canadian life partner, Robin Laws, uh, which <laughs> takes 1930s and 40s horror films, and they turns them in a Lovecraftian direction. Uh, we also, Robin and I, co-host a podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, in which the film hut is a bulwark of our content, and I recently wrote a book called The Thrill of Dracula, which looks at the Dracula story as it has been told and retold and told weirdly or badly or interestingly since, you know, 1922 and Nosferatu and down to um, uh, Dracula Untold, uh, the heartwarming latest in the universal uh, <laughs> um, the reboot. misfire oh, attempts. Oh, yeah. To do let's, the Dracula yeah, story. let's not even go there. Is that what um, I had to. Uh, yeah, the Thrill of Dracula is out now. Um, you can order it from Pelgrane Press. You can find it in better game stores. And um, I think that's that's the only ways you can get it. If you, if you can find it in a real proper bookstore, let me know, because that would be great news. <laughs> um, I'm Chris McMillan. I'm the writer and publisher of The Shadow Over Portland, where I uh, discuss all the <clears throat> fantastic events happening uh, in the horror, sci-fi, and fantasy genre, both here in Portland, all the way down to the tip of California, up into uh, Vancouver and Idaho. So um, you can find me at uh, shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. You can also find him on my podcast. He's a pretty regular guest. Uh, I'm Derek M. Cook. I produce the Monster Kid Radio podcast. We've been going for about three and a half years or so. Uh, I've been podcasting for longer than that, but uh, Monster Kid Radio is <coughs> Episode 300 in December, and on that show I talk about the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. If that sounds canned, it's because I say it on every single episode. Um, <laughs> I love my classic monster movies. Uh, you know, I love podcasting and, and talking with people about them. 
And in 2017, I'll be releasing a book called 50 Shades of Monster Movies, your guide to 50 black and white monster movies that you will love. So that'll be coming out uh, next year. Now, on my podcast, one thing that I do to introduce people to the listeners is we have a game that we play called the Classic Five. And with the Classic Five, we're not going to do all five questions. With the Classic Five, I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a yes or no, this or that style type question regarding classic uh, <coughs> monster or fantasy films. And to, inter- to kind of just break the ice here, I'm going to play the game with you guys here. I'm going to start with Sean. I was shuffling earlier right off the top. What movie do you prefer, Sean? The Amazing Colossal Man or The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman? Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. That is correct. <laughs> do, I, do I get like 500 for that? Or something? Sure. No? Okay, cool. Sure. I don't know, 500 whatever. You know. Yes, yes. All right, Ken, how about you? Do you prefer The Last Man on Earth or The Last Woman on Earth? The Last Man on Earth. Yeah, there you go, right answer. Actually, there's no wrong answers, but that's a solid thing. That's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> and Chris. Uh-oh. You prefer I was a teenage werewolf or I was a teenage Frankenstein? Oh, got to be werewolf. There you go, Michael Landon, right? You like Michael oh. Landon? Yeah. Well, of course. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? <laughs> He's America's sweetheart. There you go. <laughs> Normally on the show, I do five questions, but we're not going to. We don't have that kind of. Yeah, we, we we got other things to talk about, other movies to talk about. But if you don't have good questions, we'll go back to that. Yeah, hey, that's true. That's true. One of these days, I'll figure out a way to put these online and let people play it at home. But for now, you can only hear it on my show. So listen to my show. Anyway. All right, so uh, Lovecraftian elements in black and white monster movies. I think there's a lot of ways we can kind of go with this. And, and, I mean, I have some ideas in terms of movies that I would recommend. But since we've got an actual filmmaker up here, (laughs) I'd like to ask you, Sean, and, and, you know, (laughs) if if you guys have any questions for Sean regarding films, um, when you were doing your two films, Call of Cthulhu and Whispering Darkness, were there any particular black and white horror films that you looked for or looked to for you know, inspiration, Lovecraftian influences that work into your stuff, that sort of thing? Sure. Well, uh, the we did The Call of Cthulhu first, and if you haven't seen it, The Call of Cthulhu, the sort of aesthetic conceit of it is this, if it had been made uh, when Lovecraft was alive, and you know the story came out in 1927, and so we thought, oh, what if it had been scooped up immediately by a studio, and, and they went straight to production to, uh, to put it out as a movie. So... Uh, it's done as a silent film with the intertidal cards and all that. Um, and so, for inspiration, you know, so so much of the Call, Call of Cthulhu um, and in Lovecraft, a lot of Lovecraft's writing, uh, it's very expressionist in its nature. He's dealing with with dreams and dream symbols and creatures as you know, th- uh, sort of symbolic thinking. So we thought a nice way to embody that in making something that would feel like a, an actual film from the late twenties. Uh, are some of the German Expressionist films. So we looked at uh, Faust, uh, Cabinet of Dr. T- Caligari, um, the Murnau films, Fritz, uh, Fritz, Lang, Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Um, those are probably the, the most common uh, uh, visual yeah, sources of inspiration that we brought to The Call of Cthulhu. Um, that seemed to work out pretty well. A lot of people en- enjoyed the film and, and you know, felt did it have the aesthetic of a lot of those uh, 20s uh, German Expressionist films. When we were looking at Whisper in the Darkness, uh, we're bringing in the element of sound. Whisper was written in 1931. We continued with that aesthetic and uh, decided, all right, well, let's, let's do it as if it had been filmed in 1931, uh, which, of course, the year of uh, Dracula and Frankenstein. And, you know, it's really when Universal started getting its mojo together with the, the great 1930s horror films. So for those in particular, you know, we looked at Dracula, we looked at Frankenstein. Um, probably the, frankly, I think the Mummy is the best of the early as, as just an overall movie experience. Um, the Mummy is the best one. So there's a lot of stuff from the Mummy that we looked at. 
um, for that. We looked at some stuff uh, that goes a little bit later, um, Invisible Man, uh, there's one title I forget, there's a great model sequence in the beginning of it, a car on a muddy road that crashes the, the black cat. Black is Carlisle from the Ghost The Old Dark House. It's the Old Dark House. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, I was just about to say something about real estate. It's the Old Dark House, yeah. So um, so the, those were the places, you know, we had hoped that we had, the endeavor was to try and make Whisper feel, you know, like it's part of the family of those old um, early 30s universal films. So those were the principal references that we used, um, you know, visually looking at, you know, both, both how they were lit how they were shot, uh, the timing of the editing, you know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things. And if we're, we have an interesting mind, and we had it in Call of Cthulhu, and we, we had it in Whisper too, and that's that while we're playing with the aesthetics of the 1920s and 1930s, you guys are not from the 1920s and 1930s. <laughs> and, you know, most people who go back and look at those films, they are agonizingly slow for a modern audience. We just, are much more adept at taking visual cues and storytelling and going, okay, I got it. Let's move on to the next thing. And the filmmakers back then are like, did you get it? Did you get it? Come on. I'm going to show you this for a long time to make sure you got it before we move to the next thing. Do you, don't, you don't have it yet. I'm going to stay, you know, and it also and, helps that if your camera weighs a quarter of a ton, you're not going to be, <laughs> this, this is true. absolutely you don't. So, you know, but the overall time, timing and pacing of the films, you know, ours are made for a contemporary audience, um, so they move much, much faster than any of those films do, but because ultimately, again, we're trying to entertain you, not, you know, the audience who in 1931 thought Dracula was so exciting they were swooning in their seats, you know, or Frankenstein was so scary we need a nurse in the lobby to take care of people, you know. <coughs> a modern audience doesn't tend to feel that way about them, so. Okay. Um, I was going to ask, because I haven't seen The Whisper in the Dark this year, but did you? <gasps> I know, I know. <laughs> Don't revoke my car jet, please. Um, well, I'm going to get to it, I promise. But I was just curious, did you try to imitate the camera the lack of camera movement that uh, um, generally that, yeah. and you might actually be surprised if you go back and look at a film like the mummy with camera movement in mind it moves more it doesn't it's not mm -hmm. static at all no. they do they do moves um a lot of that is down to carl freund just being a really good cinematographer yeah absolutely, absolutely <laughs> it is so yeah. uh but you know generally our camera's probably moving a little more than theirs were but not a lot we're trying to you know again keep that but your length of edit, for example, is shorter than. Yeah, than on on the whole, yeah, there are some very uh, a couple of those films have some a uh, couple of very long shots. The Mummy, as you know, when the Mummy first moves and stuff, it is it's got to be a, a you know four and a half minute shot. I mean, it's really long, uh, and which is kind of you know it's kind of charming in its own right. But you know, we're trying to find that that sweet spot between again entertaining a modern audience and still feeling like an old film. So when we talk about looking for these Lovecraftian elements, uh, just for everybody, what are one or two you know, black and white films, horror films, monster films, would you go to to look for that Lovecraftian fix? Because we know Lovecraft didn't let his films be adapted. And none, of, none of these studios actually tried to tackle it until Corman came along um, and then did it, but then didn't tell anybody he was doing it, kind of labeled it something else. So as far as a couple of different movies you'd look at, and starting down with Chris, what would you look for for a Lovecraftian fix in these movies? Well, my go-to uh, Lovecraftian fix in uh, you know, a black-and-white monster movie is The Mummy. Um, it's got the element of cosmic horror in the idea that we are not as 
powerful as we think we are. You know, you've got the ending of that film where the hero and the um, the scientist are trying to stop Emotep and can't. And it's only when uh, the heroine prays to Isis does something happen that prevents him from carrying out his nefarious deeds. So, you know, it's that idea that there are things out there that are way more powerful than we are that we have no control over that kind of gives that movie, at least for me, a very Lovecraftian flavor to it. Um, if I'm picking one movie out of that era, um, it isn't even going to be a monster movie because a lot of the monster movies necessarily are, they're more quotidian than Lovecraft's concerns and they're not Lovecraftian monsters by and large. Sure. I mean, you can make your arguments for Creature in the Black Lagoon obviously being a deep one or whatever else, but that story is as un-Lovecraftian as any story has ever been because it's about the love of John Agar for a beautiful woman, which is irrelevant to everyone, including John Agar, as it turned out. Um, but I look at uh, the Val Luton-produced film, The Seventh Victim, which I think has a great Lovecraftian feel, because it's about a satanic cult, as it transpires, that is operating in the shadows of society. No one knows what's happening. Even the hero is singularly ineffective, uh, Dr. Judd, who is, quite frankly, bad news in the other one of those movies. He's in Cat People, and he's no, worse he's than useless in Cat People, terrible. too. <laughs> he's an awful psychiatrist, which, makes me, think, yeah, which <laughs> makes me think maybe he's the bad guy. <laughs> but in uh, Seventh Victim, he's supposedly being helpful, but he's not in exactly the Lovecraftian way right. in which his investigation only makes the problem worse. <laughs> the last shot of that movie is as stark and horrible and nihilistic as anything, I think, in 1940s film, uh, with, uh, I don't want to spoil it, but if you've watched The Seventh Victim, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, go watch The Seventh Victim. It's yes. phenomenal. See it. And the atmospherics are very Lovecraftian, and not in the sense that an old creepy house is, love, is, is atmospheric or even Lovecraftian, but in the sense of social anomy and the coming apart of everything except evil. And that has a very Lovecraftian quality to it. That at the end times, all we're going to have is new ways to kill and, 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 and raven and, and worship the old ones. And that's how we'll know we're there. And something like The Seventh Victim says, it's not that far away. Mm -hmm. And the, there's a lot of qualities about it. The, the heroine is, is poor and desperate, which is a Lovecraftian quality, especially if you look at uh, Olmsted and Shadow for Innsmouth. There's, there's elements of Lovecraft all around it, and it feels more Lovecraftian than even a, a movie that I super enjoy, which you can say has Lovecraftian qualities, like The Black Cat, but The Black Cat is working from a whole different space mm -hmm. and is doing all different things than Lovecraft is doing, even though you can look at parts of The Black Cat and say, oh, this belongs in Lovecraft because this guy's a crazy, overreaching scientist, and this belongs in The Black Cat because it's about the bottle-like grotesque, and this belongs, mm -hmm. and you can sort of pull Lovecraftian bits out of it, but the movie as a whole is not Lovecraftian, I think, in the same way that Alien, which is not in black and white, sadly, or, um, in this case, The Seventh Victim is. Well, you, Sean? Um, yeah, I, I'd probably go kind of a, a, as a starting thing, that, that once sound came into movies in, you know, in the early 30s, a lot of the the early black and white films I don't think are particularly Lovecraftian in terms of their narrative and the structure and how they were trying to tell a story. It's just 
fundamentally really very different than what Lovecraft is trying to do, um, which is really to, you know, principally to, to get us with atmosphere and tone rather than, than drama and conflict. Um, one, you know, interesting thing in terms of being a Lovecraftian one is, I don't know if any of you guys have seen Berkeley Square, yeah. um, but, but Berkeley Square is, is, seems, it's hard to imagine that it wasn't, at least at an unconscious level, an inspiration in his writing *The Shadow Out of well, Time*. He's, and he's said he's said as many as, as much as this is his favorite movie ever. And yeah, he, he, he loved it. Berkeley Square, he would do it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, and and it's a you know a, a sort of a time travel thing, and and particularly for a, a 1920s gentleman who gets to go back and be a uh, uh, you know a gentleman of uh, the Georgian era. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, a strong conceptual tie. Back to uh, the shadow out of time and and this sort of you know the same psyche being being moved forward and back in time. So I throw that one out there as a, it's not a great film and I, you know uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Actually, I didn't really care for. I found it really interesting because I'm interested in Lovecraft. But uh, you know it's not a great piece of cinema. But it is pretty interesting to to really look at at how assertively the content of that film seems to have. Or is very evenly aligned anyway with what he ended up writing in the Shadow of the Time. So, you know, you mentioned Alien, Ken. Um, there is a black and white movie from the fifties, uh, It: The Terror from Beyond Space. I believe mm-hmm. it's the full title, uh, or It with an exclamation mark and whatever, um, which does feel a lot like a precursor to Alien. Uh, have they ever gone on record and said, yes, we looked at this movie for inspiration? Um, I don't know that. I, 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 all I know is that they both denied having seen Planet of the Vampires, which just okay. strikes me as an utter lie. Yeah. Right. So I don't believe anything <laughs> they say now right. about what they use for inspiration. And again, we know that O'Bannon used Lovecraft for inspiration. He's sure. been very forthright about that. Of course, of course. But apparently they're more nervous about their cinematic uh, heritage than they are their literary one. So it from uh, The Terror from Beyond Space, it's it's... Basically, alien. It's just mm-hmm. a lot lower budget, and the costumes by Paul Blaisdell, I believe, who uh, is not eager <laughs> at all. Uh, but there's still a certain charm to it. Um, that said, if you ever watch the movie, the man they have in the suit, his head didn't fit the mask, so his chin sticks out through the mouth. Um, <laughs> now, in black and white, you can kind of just tell yourself maybe that's just another blimp or a tongue or something. But you know it. it if, once you know, yeah. you know. And then, um, of course, if you clean it up for Blu-ray, it's it, yeah. probably very obvious. Yeah, but, but it's an don't, inter- yeah, don't watch ahead. movies you love uh, from that era on Blu-ray. It'll <laughs> oh, just make no. yourself sad. No, I disagree. I, I mean, Cat People just came out on Blu-ray. Well, no, Cat, yeah. yeah, okay, only watch masterpieces on Blu-ray. Oh, sure, I see, I see, I see. But nothing else. <laughs> um, how many people here are gamers? Or, or, or at least aware of the Call of Cthulhu kind of thing. So... Um, one movie that I go to that I feel like has a retro, maybe investigator feel, um, is a movie called *The Magnetic Monster*, uh, starring Richard Carlson. It was actually his first foray into like science fiction and fantasy and that sort of thing. He, of course, is a leading creature from *The Lagoon* and a bunch of other movies. Are, are either any of you guys familiar with *The Magnetic Monster*? No, no. Okay. So it was produced by United Artists, and Ivan Torres is the man behind it. And Ivan Torres wanted to do, or ended up doing, a series of three films featuring what he called the Office of Scientific Investigation. And uh, I have a little quote from the film, so if you bear with me, I'll go through this. So it begins talking about this narration about uh, the challenges facing mankind. Atoms are bad. Radiation is bad. There's all these creepy things out there. To meet this challenge to our existence, a new agency has been formed, OSI, the Office of Scientific Investigation. The operatives of OSI are called Amen. Amen. Sounds like the final word of a prayer. It is not. A stands for atom, and atom stands for power. 
power man has unle unleashed but has not yet learned to control. Early <coughs> in space, each atom is a solar system unto itself. When studied separately, its gamma rays yield information useful in the experiments carried on by the technicians at OSI. Amen are detectives in degrees of, in science. Um, the criminals we seek are sometimes invisible to the human eyes, like radiation from outer space or particles held prisoner deep in the heart of the atom. Infinitesimal, yet within this tiny molecule, there's a tremendous force that once unlocked can create or destroy planets. Our Earth is a planet. And I really like that introduction, and it really feels like it could be a retro Delta Green opening, you know, something along those lines where you have the scientists, heroes, which I know Lovecraft didn't have. Haha, -ha, you know, the hero type characters. But you've got these scientist heroes that are using science to try to stop these unknown nebulous things. And something like the magnetic monster, it's not a monster itself. It's this force that happens to magnetize all these things. But it's drawing energy. And every time it draws energy, it gets bigger. And it needs more energy. It gets bigger. More energy. It gets bigger. Which is a problem. So Richard Carlson saves the day, which he does every time he's in a movie. <laughs> That's why he's there. That's right. He's good. <laughs> um, uh, uh, you, you mentioned the magnetic monster reminded me of what was it? It's called the monolith monster. Oh yeah, yeah. Is that black and white? It is black it and is. white. Right. Then I would awesome. put that on my list of Lovecraftian things mm -hmm. because the threat is literally implacable and inhuman. Mm -hmm. It's not even as inhuman as the invasion of the body snatchers. Nope. It is just that this rock falls over, it busts into more rocks, and then the rocks grow up into more monoliths, and eventually. It's going to keep falling over, and the world will be covered with these black monoliths. Why? Uh. <laughs> I believe it's a Universal film. Yeah. And it has all the earmarks of like a Jack Arnold production, which who did Creature, and you know, he came from outer space. Um, it ended up being directed by John Sherwood, who directed the third Creature film, uh, The Creature Walks Among Us. Um, and yeah, the monolith monsters. I mean, if you guys have not seen that one, oh. it's it's stars the uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man, right? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Grant, Grant Williams? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's just fantastic. It is. And, Check and it scary out. and creepy. Yeah. And, 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 and what I like about it is that it is, it very unusually for films of that era, it revels in not explaining anything. Yes. Mm -hmm. nice. And I mean, you, you, this is a bad habit that filmmakers always do. It's not just the 50s. The 50s did it loudly and upfront. But and you we do it now. And, you know, <laughs> it's uh, the atom. And to, and to sort of, you know, stretch the boundaries of black and white film. Uzumaki is basically a black and white film, mm -hmm. filmed in 2003 or whenever. Right. And again, doesn't explain it because the source manga had not yet finished when they made the movie. <laughs> so no one knew what was going to happen, which is why that works so super strong. And it's crazily Lovecraftian, but I think it's outside the remit of, of the panel <laughs> a little bit. But I did want to mention the, the monolith monster because that is one where, if you're watching it, you literally can't believe anyone filmed this. Mm. Yeah. It just makes no sense. It is totally anti-characteristic, I suppose, of the universal monster cycle. In the 50s, everything was, you know, men in suits or science did this or whatever. There's always some sort of conscious thing behind it. This is a universal mo monster movie that the monster is just this thing from space that decides to now, start building Do you know anything here. about the origin of this movie? Was it a thing where someone said, hey, if these rocks fall over, it looks really good on film, let's write a movie about it? Unfortunately, I don't. Uh, like I said, I know Jack Arnold was developing the project, and he was kind of universal sci-fi go-to guy during the mm -hmm. 50s. I'm not sure why he didn't get a chance, actually, to direct the film. I don't know if he was working on something else at the time or what, but unfortunately, I don't. Yeah, it's just bananas. It's, it's really, really mm -hmm. good. Yeah, and it brings up another point um, that you mentioned kind of, you know, in, in when you were discussing it, and the fact that these things don't have any evil intent. It's just they are, and that's another Lovecraftian trait. You know, it's like, you know, 
when Cthulhu rises and they come down, it's not that they're really trying to drive us crazy. It's just, just happens. Uh, just happens. It's, it's, the, it's the byproduct of them showing up. So yeah, monolith monsters. Good call. Well, you talk about they don't mean to drive us crazy or whatever. You've you mentioned the mummy quite a bit. <clears throat> My favorite scene in the mummy is when the one guy sees the mummy walk away and he breaks. If you were to make that a role playing game, he failed a sanity check oh, in a big way. Yeah. I mean, he just breaks. You, can, you can almost hear the dice rolling. Yeah, exactly. And he just, ha, 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 ha. He went for a little walk. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just fantastic. And Dwight Fry, I think. Uh, it wasn't no, Dwight Fry. No, but Dwight Fry um, in yeah. Dracula. He when they the open up, yeah, yeah. When they open up the hatch, it's like, oh, that was a critical fail there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you were mentioning some of the German silent films, and mm-hmm. you didn't mention Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. We we could, although it's perhaps less expressionistic right. in its visuals than some of the stuff we did, but yeah, it, it certainly is uh, worthy. Uh, worthy. A great use of of light and shadow in Nosferatu too. As the cinematography is really. But again, very unlovecraftian. Yeah. It is, but it's got some fascinating, I feel, occult things going on in it. Oh yeah. Uh, it's the first adaptation of Dracula, totally unauthorized by the Stoker Estate. But there's a lot of other non-Dracula stuff in this film. If you learn about, if you go look about, uh, look up things about the making of the movie, who was involved in the production, some of the. Uh, occult symbolism that you'll see in the film itself mm-hmm. to throw that into a vampire movie i just i don't know if it's lovecraftian or not but i found it really yes. neat oh yeah Al- alvin grau is a crazy neat character and well worth looking yes. at and it is a shame that prana films was bankrupted by having pirated uh brown stoker's novel right. because the goal was to make a bunch of metaphysical horror yes. films mm-hmm. and put occult secrets into all of them and that was the big plan and it didn't work because they Got on the wrong side of Florence Stoker. Pretty much. Um, I, 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 speaking of vampire movies, one that I think is more Lovecraftian than most in that era is Carl Dreyer's Vampire. Mm. And this is not the Lovecraftian of the Call of Cthulhu or even Shadow of Time. This is the old school he, uh, hypnos, those kind of Lovecraft where there's a guy and you're not sure if he just did opium at the beginning of the story. <laughs> you're not sure if he's gone insane and this is his crazy recounting of it. You're really not sure what is going on at any given time. Vampire is a movie that in, in theory is based on Carmilla. So there are vampires in it. We're pretty sure. Maybe. Maybe they kill the guy. Maybe they don't kill the guy. Maybe he just takes a long nap. <laughs> you are never sure. And this is on purpose. This is not Dreyer being obtuse. This is Dreyer saying, no, when you enter the world of vampires, your senses become unreliable. You don't know what's happening. It is like you are in a dream, in a nightmare. And he was deliberately trying to film what a nightmare felt like when he made Vampire. Now the downside is that because it is so based on, you know, sort of this uh, this atmosphere, it does make you sleepy. So I recommend pounding <laughs> yeah. a Red Bull first, then watching Vampire, <laughs> because otherwise Dreyer will just, you like the narrator, will say, did I not off? Am I still in this movie? What happened here? So, and the thing about Vampire is that it, it's um, it's in the public domain because it's you know old enough to be available in a lot of different box sets. Typically, not the best transfer. Yeah. Even though there's an awesome Criterion release of Vampire that <coughs> looks gorgeous, something like Vampire, if it's a kind of little fuzzy, it's okay. Yeah. It kind of lends itself to the narrative. Mm-hmm. I'm, that wasn't intentional, I'm sure. But if it's a little fuzzy because it's like a third or fourth generation transfer, well, it's all right. I mean, it's kind of the point. Yeah. So. If Dreyer could have reliably made it that fuzzy, you'd think maybe he might have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to mention a movie starring Leslie Nielsen. 
because I love Naked Gun. No, um, he was in a movie called Dark Intruder in the 60s, uh, which was originally uh, a TV movie pilot that they didn't make a TV series out of and they threw into the theaters instead. It's Leslie Nielsen playing, again, the hero uh, who knows a bunch of occult stuff and has to save the day, and he name-drops Dagon, he name-drops Azathoth, he name-drops uh, Nyoktha, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, but it's a god that Harry Kuttner created in the Cthulhu Mythos. Um, it's, it's interesting in that, well, what is Nielsen and Sirius, which is... <laughs> I grew up in the 80s, man. I mean, he's the naked gun guy to me, but you see him in something like this, and he's serious. He was a good dramatic actor, and to hear him name drop in Lovecraftian deities makes me very, very happy. Um, like I said, it came out in the 60s. Uh, I believe Jack Laird had something to do with it, and he also was the person who brought a, love, a lot of Lovecraft to Night Gallery, so you know that was intentional. Um, one of the last exchanges of dialogue in that movie... Uh, he asks his assistant, or he, his uh, manservant type, if only the rest of the world knew what we knew, huh? And the response is, if they did, sir, nobody would get a de decent night's sleep. <laughs> and to me, that feels very like, if, if people really knew what was in the Necronomicon or what, what was going on there, he'd never sleep again. Or would want to go to sleep and never wake up. When you said Leslie Nielsen, I was terrified that you were going to say Forbidden Planet and take mine. Uh, no, no, yeah. please. Use it as a segue. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Leslie Nielsen as a dramatic actor, uh, he is the star of the film Forbidden Planet, which is an all-time classic. It's a great movie, unlike yes. a lot of these. Mm -hmm. It is well worth watching now. Mm -hmm. It is based loosely on The Tempest, mm -hmm. which is crazy when you figure it out. Um, but... It is very much like The Tempest. It's the story of people with quotidian lives who accidentally sail into a magical world and are uh, endangered by it. Mm -hmm. Also like The Tempest, it has a happy ending. Too bad. But um, but the world, the lost, the, the titular Forbidden Planet is a Lovecraft setting par excellence. Yes. Um, it has a lost civilization, the Krell, and they built a they built this giant society, this giant system by which they would remove everyone's id so that you wouldn't have any bad feelings and everyone could live in a utopia. Well, guess what? That went wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> the planet is haunted by these monsters from the id, which is basically, you know, that's practically, you know, neighbors to Lovecraft, if not Lovecraft itself. Yes. And then there is a crazy old scientist who lives there and studies the Corral ruins, who is a Lovecraft uh, protagonist all over the map. And, of course, you've got a gorgeous daughter because Miranda... But the uh, but the but the the setting and the backdrop and sort of the ongoing story of Forbidden Planet is crazily Lovecraftian. And if you can get over your Lost in Space related uh, heebie-jeebies about Robbie the robot, the robot is also kind of a Lovecraftian thing because it is an intellect without a right with, without flesh, mm. and it is sort of the other half of the monsters from the id, which are intellect without flesh, but in the other direction. And that, of course, is the uh, Ariel character, is, is Robbie the Robot. So, the notion of intelligence being divorced from flesh is very Lovecraftian. Yes. The whole setting is a Lovecraft planet. You know something, Azathoth was summoned or something happened there. <laughs> and the whole backdrop, is, and the, the sets are gorgeous and alien and strange in a way that I think Lovecraft would have appreciated the aesthetic of. Mm -hmm. And it's just a plain old terrific movie. It's not a monster movie. It's not even really a horror movie, but it is super Lovecraftian in a lot of its elements, in a lot of its feel. And so, if you, God forbid, haven't seen Forbidden Planet, rush right down. There's a, there's a there's a, oh, a nice yeah. new uh, uh, Blu-ray of it. I think it's very nice. So. And I'm a film score geek, and the film score in that is so different 
it just lends to that Lovecraftian mm -hmm. presence. It's just so off. Um, so yeah, that's a it's a great film. It also feels like a precursor to Star Trek in a lot of ways. So if you like yeah. classic Trek, yeah, you can see there, there's there's a yeah there's a strong Trek quality. Yeah. But that's because I think a lot of the guys who wrote Trek episodes had watched Forbidden Planet. Sure. And um, I think one of the closest Trek parallels it is is to the Star Trek um, uh, episode. Uh, is it what are little girls made of? That's basically at the Mountains of Madness, only it's a Star Trek episode. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that that's way off our topic area. But watch that episode and think this is this is Lang, and you won't be wrong. <laughs> when 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 uh, Ted Cassidy intones the old ones came. You know that was Robert Block saying, yeah, that's going to go in Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> you have a question? The old Outer Limits TV series? Okay. They had a lot of, they had a lot of books that spread through there, you know, like, 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 you know, yeah, you can find a lot of that. Um, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, uh, Thriller, uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller. They they had some just straight up Lovecraft adaptations. Yeah, yeah. Or Lovecraft adaptations, no, contemporary. Like. And Thriller, of course, adapted Pigeons from Hell. I was just about to yes. say that. I mean, that's the, for my money, I love Conan and all that, but for my money, their version of Pigeons from Hell is the best Robert E. Howard adaptation I've ever seen mm. or heard. I love it. And I'm, you know. I made a Howard movie, so I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's awesome. And again, a lot of the writers of these shows were people who were either correspondents with Lovecraft right. or had grown up reading Lovecraft in the pulp uh, paperbacks right. as they came out. Yeah, and it's interesting bringing up uh, Outer Limits because they're, you know, while they had their fair, you know, the monster of the week, um, sometimes those <clears throat> monsters were just either brought here for some strange, you know, just, just through happenstance or were created, and I remember the one about the energy cloud, I mean, that's just, they're trying to contain it, but it gets loose, you know, that's just, hey, it's there, it's just doing what it does, it's got no animosity towards us, it's just going to be killing us, you know, <laughs> it's just going to be killing us, and we have to keep it contained, you know, I mean, that, yeah, there's, there's some elements you can find to Lovecraft in some of those. Do you have a question? What about uh, the uh, Nigel Neal Quatermass? There we go. Uh, yeah, I was going to bring up Quatermass. Uh, no one asked about Quatermass, Quatermass gets brought up. Yeah, so the first two Quatermass films by Hammer starred Brian Dunleavy. I know you're a bigger fan of The Color, yes. the third one. And I know it's out of, out of topic. But, you know, it's a fantastic film. But, no, you can. So it's a great it. film. I, I'd mention it because it, it's totally Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, Nigel Neal was like a huge one. Lovecraft. I mean, well, yeah, there's lots of con right. connections there. Yes. Um, but but yes, the Quatermass one and Quatermass yes. two. Uh, it's the creeping unknown, and I always forget what's the second. Uh, um, X from. Was it X? No, X the unknown is a different one. Different one. Mm. Uh, the creeping uh, Quatermass one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they had American. Google titles. will tell you what yeah, they are. They had American titles because we didn't know what Quatermass was, but in yes. the UK they were called Quatermass. Yes. And Brian Dunleavy plays Quatermass in that, and he's probably the sore thumb that sticks out in that whole thing, because he's the brash American type. I love him, but the, he's not very Lovecraftian. The rest or of the movie, Quatermassy. No, he's not Quatermassy at all, especially <laughs> compared to what Andrew Kier would do later. Right. 
Um, but the stories themselves, what's going on there, yeah. I mean, they're fantastic. And I think on a previous panel a couple of years ago, or maybe whatever with you, you were talking about how much you'd love to get your hands on the Quaker Best license just oh, to play in that world. That is the only thing that I ever want to do as a license again. I've, <laughs> I've been there and done that, but I would do a Quaker Mass role playing game so fast. <laughs> That would be fun. Yeah, it would. Now, I love the, the scientist adventure type, you know, who gets sucked into these stories. It's one of the things I thought your version was very dark. Mm -hmm. He had this. He wasn't necessarily you know this social scientist guy, but you know he went, went into this this thing, and he's supposed to know all this stuff, and whereas he doesn't really know anything. Well, sure, yeah, and that's you know that is really the the Lovecraftian journey. Um, you know, is is from from knowledge that's superficial into knowledge that's real, and knowledge that's real destroys you. Um, and uh, you know that that really there is a safe level of ignorance, and you you can still be a professor without crossing that line. But you know, in so many of the Lovecraft stories, the 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 guy, you know, and 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 I, I love the quality you know that runs throughout so many of the stories that it's really intellectual curiosity it's curiosity killed the cat you know it's that these guys know they should they're butting up against that which ought not be known and cannot help but to cross over just out of the pure you know quest for knowledge which is very deeply a part of Lovecraft's own personality and then they end up paying you know a spectacular price for it so and again that's not a solely Lovecraftian theme that goes back to Mary Shelley Frankenstein right. or before that to yeah. Faust but it is very strongly Lovecraftian and the way that it is played out in, especially the first one, I think, the, the Quatermass Experiment slash Briefing Unknown, is super strong because it is literally, we send a guy up into space and he comes back and he's covered in life-absorbing and imitating space fungus monster stuff. Fundamentally. And it's, a, that, it's like, that's the kind of thing that happens when you go into space. You come back, you're covered with a life-absorbing monster. And it takes them forever, and they have to blow up Westminster Abbey, I think, at the end. <laughs> it's just insane the amount of work they have to do to contain one contaminated yes. astronaut. The last scene of that movie is Quatermass getting ready to launch the second rocket. They're like, well, did you learn nothing? <laughs> we begin again. Bernard, if that is your real name. It's just, and it's, and it's so perfectly Lovecraftian, the sense that, no, once you're on the path... You are going to go into the Black yeah. Seas of Infinity, and you are going to drown there, and nothing I say is going to stop you. You know, that happens in the second OSI film, too. Yeah. There's three of them. Uh, Riding for the Stars, I believe. Are they the stars? Yeah. Uh, Richard Carlson's in that film as well, but he plays a different character. And in that, they're going into space, trying to do stuff with, a, I believe, a comet or a meteor. And <coughs> the Richard Carlson character gets so obsessed with, with what's going on that he's on that path. You know, he's, he's going, and he, when he finally figures out what's going on, it's... You know, he's on that path. He's stuck. He's done. He no spoilers, but yep. it's not his movie. <laughs> <Say that. laughs> what was the third? Gog. Gog was the third film. Um, Gog is out on blue. Uh, Magnetic Monster is out on blue, and I think I heard that Riders of the Stars is going to be coming out on blue. Uh, Kurt Siadmuk was involved in the writing of the first two, and he's of course the man who wrote The Wolfman. Um, I love those movies. I absolutely adore them. Um, if you don't want to go with the Blu-ray, you can also get GOG, I think, still through Warner Archives. You know, they have those uh, DVDs on demand, and you can pick it up that way, too. And uh, when I mentioned Dark Intruder, I failed to mention, it is available on DVD through TCM, uh, through their website, through their web store, as a double feature with the William Castle film, The Night Walker. Oh, that's not, that's not bad at all. Which is a weird mix, but it's available that way. 
Um, while we're doing, since you asked about Quatermass, I yes. guess I should mention the other obvious one, which is the original Christian Nyby Howard Hawks The Thing. Yes. Which is somewhat based on the John W. Campbell short story, but is more based on the sort of average impression of what aliens are going to do to us. <laughs> yeah. And there is a scene in the original The Thing that I think is one of the most cosmic horror things ever made. <clears throat> Sadly, the rest of the movie is James Arness in a carrot suit. Although the, res the responses of the scientists, I think, are very Lovecraftian. No, we have to study it. That's a terrible idea. We got into this by studying it. Burn it, burn it. But there's the bit where they go to the glacier and they're trying to find the mysterious yeah. meteorite and they start spreading out and spreading out and, and the camera pulls back and pulls back and pulls back and they're just ringed around yes. this perfect circle. And that geometry in the middle of nothing, that is such a strong, that, that just screams Lovecraft to me. That, oh, we found a flying saucer and it's crashed here in the Arctic. That moment is crazily, cosmically horrific mm. in a way that the rest of the movie does not live up to, although the message of the movie is still pretty Lovecraftian, that um, you're, you're doomed by your quest to find out why you're doomed, fundamentally. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the last bit, you know, keep watching the skies is again very much a, a, a call to a, love, a specifically Lovecraftian kind of panic, I think. Um, right, it's right around Colorado space. I would be remiss if I said it's all Colorado space, but it's right around Colorado space that a thing falling from the skies stops being Jesus and starts being bad. <laughs> it, yeah. You know, if, you, if you're watching a movie now and it begins with a meteor falling, you are nine times out of ten watching a horror film. Something bad's about to go down. Kaltiki. Kaltiki. Do you want to talk about Kaltiki? I'm sure we want to talk about Kaltiki. I don't know Kaltiki. I don't know Kaltiki. Kaltiki. I don't get out much. I'm I'm drawing a blank too. It's it's possibly Mario Bava's first film. Potentially, yeah. There's a lot of question about who really directed it, and it it's kind of like a meaner, nastier, more low budget version of the Blob. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's Blob is better. Yeah. I, mean, I love the Steve McQueen The Blood. Yes. I love it deeply. Which is playing at the drive-in tonight at the 99W, just so it yeah. Anyway. Um, but, yeah. the, but the monster in Kaltiki, because I guess the budget is lower. It is a much lower It's budget. a trashier looking monster. But yeah. that works because it's got this sort of hideously organic feel to it that the blob doesn't. It does feel slime, like oily. There's yeah. an oil, a slick, not not a slick, it's a yeah. good thing, but like it leaves a slick, I just... Because the blob is just the cranberry jelly you get at Christmas. Right, right. right. That's all he is. He's just coming... You're, yeah, is you're that how you, guys, you rank your blobs by how slimy they are? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and, and you're surprised that there's not the rings from the can around the blob <laughs> at the time. But, but the Calti... The, the, the basic story of Kaltiki is that they're exploring a Mayan ruin, which they shot on location, so the ruin looks cool. Yep. Um, and there's a, there's, well, I wonder what happened to the Mayans. And they discover a bas-relief that tells them that the Mayans fled the coming of a comet and fled to this, you know, the, the, this remote spot where we happen to be right now, or fled this remote spot where we happen to be right now. And guess what? The comet is coming back around again. So the stars are coming right. So when the comet comes back, it makes the blob monster grow because the radiation of the comet, etc., etc., etc. So it's got a star, stars coming right, thing from the past, ancient curse uh, of brown people, informative bas relief, and a blob. I mean, it's super Lovecraftian, but I don't know 
that there's any connection, and the name has even got a CLMT in it. And yeah. It, uh, I don't. I, I just don't know that there's a connection. I don't know if you can prove it. I mean, yeah. Lovecraft is available in Europe by the time they made Kaltiki, which is 57, 69? Yeah, that sounds about right. Something yeah. like that. Late 50s. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's possible someone read it, but I would not have thought that an Italian screenwriter is thinking, that's what I want to do. Right. But I want to set it in Mayan times. Right. <laughs> no, I, I don't know about that. Um, I, I know Kaltiki is one you can get your hands on pretty easily here in the States. It's, Supposedly in the public domain, so a lot of these boxes pick it up. It's really not, but um, you can also get a really, I don't know, better transfer of it on DVD out of Italy. Uh, so do some shopping online to find it that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, Caltiki, it's so. And I don't it's wanna, spot on. I mean, I, it is spot on. And I don't want to make people rush out and, and watch it because it's not a really good movie. There are a lot of problems with it. There's some audio issues. A lot. I mean, a lot of these Italian films, they, they did not shoot live sound, so a lot of things were dubbed later in studio, and they have a, a full-grown woman voicing the child, and uh, it's a little <laughs> off. But, you know, whatever. Well, some of the time. Well, the Well, and, and not only that. Come on, let's be honest. Some of those little problems kind of give it a little charge. True. You know, I True. mean, we're and watching a bad movie. It's okay that the dubbing's off. And again, if you're looking for signs that is Baba's first film, there's Baba-ness to it. There really is. So, if you're a Baba fan, as you well should be, go ahead, watch Kaltiki, knock yourself out. Just don't expect it to be as good as, you know, Black Sabbath or Black Saturday, because it won't be. Black Saturday? Yeah. Saturday? <laughs> I thought it was Sunday. Black Sunday, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're but Black Saturdays. Saturday. Yeah, I, I do. Somebody should make Black Saturday. <laughs> Get off my back, people. It's Sunday. <laughs> I, I don't know how much time we have or when they're going to cut us off, so does anybody have any comments, questions, or movies they'd recommend? Yeah, we have a little bit of time. Do we? I think we've got cool. until 5.30, doesn't yeah. it? Do we? Awesome. What's that? The black and white version of The Mist. Ah, yeah. Ooh. So if you can actually watch it in black and white on the Blu-ray, right? You can watch it in black and white by turning your TV to black and white. Yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> I, I think the... Uh... You can watch anything in black and white. I think that may be going past our remix a little bit. I think you know it's great in black and white? Lots of things. I think uh, when they released the DVD as a two-pack, when it first came out, the black and white version was in it, too. So yeah. it's not hard to get uh, get your hands on it. Do you have a question? How about that Roger Corman guy in the 1950s was doing drive-in stuff. Right. In many ways, your typical alien at the drive-in movie. So many of those films have that dark, rooting pessimism. The one that comes to mind is not this earth. Not this earth. Mm. In some ways, well, again, it's just an alien invasion, but you've got the sinister figure. Some art that reminds me a little tiny bit of cold air. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's I, yeah. Good I call. I had Yeah. Dark house. Yeah. Serious. There's a, there's a beautiful woman in it, which kind of instantly takes away from us. There's one in From Beyond too. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. What's the um? They was remade later. They called it Zontar. Um, it's a Peter Graves movie. Um, the, the inverted. Yeah. Movie. It, it, it conquered, conquered the world. world. The way it kind of. Starts speaking directly to the John. Is it John Carradine who plays that role? No, it's Cleveland uh, Keith. Excuse me, Cleveland Keith. Uh, the way he kind of starts talking to him, kind of becoming this. Um, I like that one as well. But yeah, Roger Corman. I think obviously Corman was a bit, was aware of Lovecraft. I mean, he made the Haunted Palace, and even though he called it a Edgar Allan Poe's clearly Lovecraft. 
but he was aware of Lovecraft, so I would not be surprised if any of these things kind of crept into what he was doing. what-if machine question, if you could somehow convince a filmmaker from the 20s, 30s, 40s, black and white film, of course, to do a Lovecraftian film, what Lovecraftian film and what director? Um, mine is a producer, although if I get to pick the director too, it's going to be Jacques Tourneur. Yes. But I'm going to get Val Luton to make The Curse of Charles Dexter Ward, and I'm going to break Hollywood in half with it. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a Lovecraft film, there's no special effects required, yep. it's all character study, it's all it's exactly down Val Luton's alley. He would have done such a great job with that source material. And it... Uh, I'm not one of those guys that gets mad at Lovecraft for a lot of things, but I get really mad at him for turning down Putnam's request for a novel when he has Charles Dexter Ward in his damn desk drawer. Well, he didn't want to have to type it. Well, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Although, and this is an interesting thing. I only learned this last year about Lovecraft and typing. Uh, is His typewriter was a type of typewriter that's called an understrike. And uh, I, did, I was like, what the hell is that? Um, and a normal, you know, the typewriters, we generally think of a manual typewriter. You hit the key, and an arm swings forward, and then hits the ribbon, which is right in front of the piece of paper. An understrike works in the opposite direction. So you hit the key, and an arm comes up underneath, and it's actually hitting on the, the back, and it still types. But you can't see what you're typing. Hmm. And so when Lovecraft is faced with having to type Charles Dexter Ward without seeing whether you're getting it right as you go, what a nightmarish way of typing. Yep. And part of his utter hatred for typing was the fact that he had this cruddy undertype typewriter. typewriter. But isn't that Lovecraft all over? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's completely him. Of course, right. no, of course he has the backwards typewriter. Yeah. Why wouldn't he? Um, Jerk. Going to your question, I don't know who I would have directed, but I've always thought that what I would love to see is a 30s adaptation of Call of Cthulhu, um, Boris Karloff as the narrator, uh, Bela Lugosi as the inspector, uh, whose name is Lagrasse, thank you, and uh, Dwight Fry as the poor Norwegian sailor who has to run through Cthulhu because he's going (laughs) to just look insane. And then, of course... Willis O'Brien doing the effects. Um, like yeah. I said, I'm not sure who the director would be. I'd like to say James Whale, but I think he'd bring way more humor into it than that's why not, really. Why not Marion Cooper? I mean, you oh, got a guy oh, going to hey, South there's Korea, a guy go. Go fight there monsters. You go. That sounds there like you my go. guy, right? It's the dream team you put together. <laughs> Plus, Thank Cooper you. can put together the action, right? <laughs> in a way that a lot of people can't. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what movie, what story I'd have him do. Or what cast, but it really wouldn't matter because 1930s Edgar Ulmer oh, yeah. would be amazing. <laughs> I mean, again, we talked about the Black Cat, the production design, the stark shadows in that. Um, there's a scene in that where he's just going upstairs, and it's one of the scariest damn things you'll see. Um, the character, it's just, I mean, the way he made these, his films were fantastic. Unfortunately, had some issues, um, kind of sort of blacklisted from the big studios, and ended up starting not doing some of the lower budget stuff, but I mean, giving him, give him all the resources and knock it out, watch whatever movie he's going to make. Dreams of the Witch House. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. That's yeah. my Edgar Ulmer if I get to pick one. There we go. <laughs> no, that's good. Man. That would be good. Yeah, uh, talking about production design also made me think of, you know, the... One of the things as a filmmaker when I watch, particularly Dracula and Frankenstein, it's fascinating because, you know, they spent such horrific amounts of effort and time and money on some of the sets are so spectacular and then you'll cut to the saddest grassy knoll with a 
across it that's supposed to be a graveyard. You know, you cut back and forth, but but to have some of the sets like Castle Dracula and and Castle Frankenstein and build a set for at the Mountains of Madness at that scale, oh. where, you, where you've got these you know murals that and the bottle reliefs that go on forever and the whole cyclopean scale of that story, the production designers of that, you know, I think that's, you know, we've, we've often thought about trying to do a version of the Mountains of Madness, and it's just, again, it's cruelly expensive and labor-intensive to try and fill Lovecraft's vision, because everything is so big, and certainly every time I watch yeah, either Dracula or Frankenstein, both those castles and things, you know, are these gargantuan 60-foot-high sets going, holy God, I don't know, you know, it, it's so beyond the purview of the kind of sets that are built in Hollywood nowadays almost for anything, you know. Yeah. Um, just just spectacular production design. Mm. That would be amazing. Yeah. Okay, so adding a little Belvedere to this. Uh -oh. <laughs> How about a 1947 Republic serial of Innsmouth <laughs> with a blacklisted Hollywood writer who puts in a, like, a communist witch in the Oh. I could think of a couple of places where you could have the cliffhangers, oh, like uh, chase through the uh, through the hotel room because yeah. that's, that's the McCarthy room. Hotel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. I would watch the hell out of that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Although the Walt Disney Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta tell you. Any any other comments, questions, movie recommendations, or? Anything. Can I tell the last one? Your previous panel. We know Lovecraft saw the German expressionist films. Um, I don't know because no one saw Nosferatu in America except studio executives. We know that there were prints of it that were circulating in the black market in Los Angeles, but it was never shown. Um, Lovecraft was in New York at a time when expressionist films were being shown. But I don't know that he would necessarily. I don't. You, you want to be asking Joshi this question? Yeah, ST would be the guy yeah. I'd go to for that. I, but, I don't. I can't think of ever having read anything where he specifically references. And I think he'd probably be disinclined to sort of a European art house film. Yeah. But you know, I think that's just too un New England patrician <laughs> as an entertainment form. So. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to think of the locations in in uh, the outsider in a practical manner. Going, what the hell kind of? How exactly yeah. does this work? Where where is the ground? Yeah, how far underground are you? <laughs> you know, who built it and made it this way and why? And so I, I think I'm right there with you that something that's almost an Assyrian. You know, you go up a staircase to land at the bottom of it, kind of thing. Going, this is a. A strange distortion from normal reality, so that when the guy gets out and actually enters the cocktail party, it can you know it's it's Although, extra jarringly wrong. Kill baby, kill era Mario Baba could have done it. Mm, it's right? true because yeah. he's all about that weird architecture in that town and in that building. So yeah. that could work. Yeah, but the only problem is you'd have to do it from his point, from the character's point of view, because once you show him, you've kind of oh yeah lost yeah, it. Yeah, so that would be an interesting exercise to Lady in the Lake yeah, style. Do the, yeah, have 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 those sets, but only show what he's seeing. Yeah, what he sees. yeah that's, that sounds like a like a 
film student college project to be. <laughs> well, it's just it's not anything. It's hard to imagine having a commercial appeal. Yeah. So it's a, yeah. it's a good yeah. thesis film, to, but um, or a good short for a festival like this. If only there were a festival if that would show or films. Oh, I know. A festival that truly no. understands. Mm, uh, I wish. A festival that brings the cosmic. I'd horror. go to it every year if there was one. <laughs> In closing, I mean, I don't know. Do we need to say in closing, or they haven't kicked us out yet? So, uh, you mentioned. We should probably say in closing, though. In, okay. in closing, just in case they come in. <laughs> Is the young man a deep one? I mean, if he's not, he's the next best thing, right? I mean, the thing about the, the deep ones is we don't know whether or not they're their own evolutionary thing that mm -hmm. is somehow cross-contaminated with humanity, or if they're built as an offshoot of humanity or off of the homo line because that's how their reproductive system works. So are they basically a parasite, are they a symbiont, or are they an evolutionary offshoot? And if they're an evolutionary offshoot, the deep one, the, the Gilman is also an evolutionary offshoot, but it might be to the deep ones as uh, Gigantopithecus is to Java Man, right? They're, they're all homo, but some are homoer than others. And the Gilman might be a, uh, a deep one. Say no more, Ken. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he, might be a, he, he might be a deep one who, who hit an evolutionary dead end, basically, and, and lost the ability to, um, uh, to reproduce himself in the Brazilian interior. And that's why he's atavistically seeking attractive young ladies. <laughs> I mean, the, the habit of atavistically seeking attractive young ladies argues more for deep one than it doesn't, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that's always a tough one for me because it's like on, on one hand, deep ones are yeah, a little more, I would say, intelligent to a point than uh, the gill man who's mostly an instinctual type creature. So... Yeah, that kind of pushes me towards he's not really a deep one, but boy, if you're going to design a deep one, that 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 is <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that get, is it. Get Millicent Patrick to do it. I mean, Julie Adams would stir my instincts. So <laughs> the uh, I mean, maybe they the the, the Gill men evolved to look like deep ones to frighten predators. Oh, that oh, could be. Right. There, there you go. go. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, evolutionary mimicking. Exactly. Mm. That's common. Sure. <laughs> Trust me, 1956, that totally plays. Oh, it totally plays. It totally play with like a, a 10 minute introduction to the film, a bit right, of narration yes. from some scientist telling us how the world began and this is why we ended up with the Gill Man. What? Yeah, it's the good old 50s science. What about something like the Mole People? Where we've got mm. this group going into like a, a mountainous area and then you go underground and find this hidden civilization and all this other stuff. And, Oh, I mean, that's I'm, more all of a sudden thinking, than, I'm all of a crowd. sudden thinking of the, uh, the the tribe that's underneath as the Arctic albino penguins because they're all, you know, very pale and can't handle sunlight. And all of a sudden, there's the mole men, uh, mole people who are the Chagas, you know. Mm. I, would, eh. I would have loved to see a 1930s Universal six foot giant penguin. Yeah, I would, I would too. Love to see that. <laughs> Sure, sure. The, the, the lost nineteen forty five launch any big one. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
people love turning these panels into the alternate history film. Board. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm on board. You know, that movie's probably on a, on a shelf somewhere with London After Midnight yeah. and the Spider Pit sequence from King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know what? You do the 1945, you get Ir Ir um, uh, Irving Albright to paint the paintings like he did in Dorian Gray. Yeah. Ooh, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Boom, now I'm watching it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, 40s Lon Chaney is a little off his game by then. I don't know. Who would you cast as Pickman? I'm sure Lon Chaney because he's screwed up in exactly the same way Pickman is. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but but again, it's I mean by then, you if you know anything about his life, you're, you're just instantly sorry for him whenever he shows up because he's been drinking formaldehyde <laughs> to get vertical enough to come on camera without shaking. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a question? Well, I already did that in a little book called Shadows Over Filmland, and I encourage everyone to check it out. <laughs> um, of those, my favorite is probably my recasting of the Black Hat as the Black Chateau, which uh, makes the the house, the sort of mod modernist, terrible house, an aspect of Carcosa. And that's because I'm an architect at heart, um, as my, my true reverence for the art form. Um, you know, I, and then I did lots of other very brilliant and clever stuff with the Mummy and Dracula, which I encourage you to check out. But Black Chateau is the best one. Um, I would like to see uh, part of the mythos. It's kind of um, it would never get done in the '30s, mind you. The idea that um, you know, in the in the Mountains of Madness, where they find the hieroglyphics that show that we're just the results of an experiment with apes done by the great old ones, or, you know, the... the somebody. Somebody in there. Um, I would, you know, and that, that goes back into um, Quartermass and the, uh, Quatermass and the Pit, you know, I would like to, I would, I would like to see a movie bring that in, but even today, I don't think you're going to be able to do it. There would be a little bit too much of a push against it uh, from certain elements in society. But that would be an interesting thing to to bring into any movie, I think. Any horror film. Because what's more horrible than finding out we're just a screw-up? So I'd, I'd bring a good scoop of Nyarla Hotep and... Lovecraftian Egyptian mythology into the mummy and just simply rework the 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 occult forces that are at work um, behind the characters. I think you make it a much more ominous, much more frightening uh, picture than it is. So, and then you could probably explain why in one movie he goes down in the swamp in New England and then comes back up in the next one in uh, Louisiana somewhere. You we didn't realize those were interconnected. <laughs> <laughs> we have we had our one minute warning, so we pretty much need to wrap up. Again, check out Ken's books, his blog. His movies and radio drama, and my podcast. Thank you, cool. Thank you. Um, I've got a couple postcards from Monster Kid Radio up here. If anybody wants them, and uh, if you want to talk classic monsters with me the rest of the time, I'm here. Ages ago, in a long-lost part of the world, the Mayans worshipped a terrifying goddess, 
To her, men offered their strength and their devotion. Women offered the beauty of their bodies. Altiki, the immortal monster. Today, courageous adventurers, dedicated scientists of both sexes, begin the exploration of recently discovered caverns buried in the very womb of the earth. From space beyond space comes force beyond measurement, energizing this monstrous mass of man-eating protoplasm that devours every living thing it touches. When her mate appears in the sky, the power of Kaltiki will destroy the world. You can believe what you like. Kaltiki's been reborn. Anything on this earth stop Kaltiki, the immortal monster. fiction adventure ever filmed. Emergency! Emergency! Conditions desperate. Little chance of survival. Help us. Mark, look! What have you got? The Elliot. Bert, get me a fix on this right now. Wes, Brad, controls. Planet of the Vampires. Harboring a form of life worse than death. Planet of the Bloodless. Creatures who take men's bodies, but attack like vampires. I'll tell you this, if there are any intelligent creatures on this planet, they're our enemies. In this outer space world, the living dead try to escape into life. just one of many beings on this planet and we're fighting to survive it's imperative that our race continue to exist we arranged for several of you to kill each other so that we could take over your bodies you are our last chance no never we'll all of us give up our lives to save our own race Submitted for your approval, Craig Beam. 
a 40-something-year-old man-child. In some respects, your typical Pacific Northwest inhabitant, that breed of male who prefers t-shirts to neckties, drinks too much beer, and perpetually sports facial hair regardless of the current trends. But he's also got one foot planted firmly in the global phenomenon known as nerddom. He possesses an unassailable fondness for action figures, funny t-shirts, and cute internet memes. And somewhere in the gray, misty region between those two disparate aspects of his personality, he possesses a single-minded and passionate preoccupation. He's obsessed with, of all things, the Twilight Zone. And much to the chagrin of his long-suffering family, he can't shut up about it. And starting this fall, he's going to make you suffer too. Is it a podcast? Or a cheesy morning radio show? Or some ungodly hybrid of the two? Find out for yourself on September 1st, 2016, when Between Light and Shadow, a Twilight Zone podcast, officially thrusts its awkward and ungainly self upon the world. You'll find it in all the usual podcast places, whether you want to or not. God help us all. All right, so the 2016 H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival is nearly in the books. Uh, this part of the episode is going to be at the end of the show. So listeners have already heard me introduce uh, the aspects, And they've already heard the panel that I was on with my boy. <laughs> uh, Monster Kid Radio guest number one, Chris oh. McMillan, from the shadow over Portland. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How uh, It's been great time. Thanks for having me on. And you can tell the con funk is coming in. Because it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's it's Sunday afternoon evening. Uh, it's gloomy. It's rainy. It's Portland. It's very Lovecraftian. And yeah, we've been going pretty much nonstop here at the festival. Um, I wouldn't miss it for the world. How long have you been coming to this? I really don't remember, but I think thinking back on it, when I was going through my old T-shirts, figuring out which uh, Lovecraftian <laughs> one I wanted to wear, I think my first one was when Bernie Wrightson was here. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember what year that was, but I think that was it. Um, I, I mean, I know it was a ways back, but yeah, ever since then, uh, with like maybe one or two exceptions, I've been here every year. I've been coming since '02, I believe, and uh, man, I just it gets better and better. Mm-hmm. You know, even a year like this, and and I'm not saying anything bad, okay, about the Hollywood, so please don't take it that way. This year is kind of like the blow-off show, meaning last year's the twentieth. Here's the 21st. You know, they pulled out all the stops for the 20th anniversary show. So for this one, you know, it feels a little smaller. <laughs> that said, and I can honestly say this, I've had more fun at this festival than I have at any other festival. How does, how's this one rank for you? This one ranks up really high. I mean, it, it was a real treat to see Stuart Gordon twice, uh, once introducing and doing Q&A for uh, From Beyond, which if you guys were at the festival and missed that, it was it was great. The man has a great <laughs> sense of humor. Um, and just reconnecting with everyone. Everyone keeps showing up. We keep bumping into the same people over and over every year. And it's like, oh, yeah, how you doing? It's so great to see you. That's a big part of it, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember we were just hanging out with people all Friday. We met, um, The short blocks got full. Yeah. And we're just hanging out, bumping into people. Um, 
Yeah, talking to William Stout. Ah, you went yeah. there. You went there. Yeah, I was going to go there too. So every day of the festival, Friday, Saturday, and I did a little bit today as well, made it a point to. Okay, well, Friday it was an accident. We kind of stumbled into a conversation <laughs> with William Stout that lasted a good 15, 20 minutes, oh, I'd yeah. say. We're talking and, monsters. Oh, wow. That was wonderful. Yeah. And then we did it again on Saturday, and then uh, I made sure I, I thanked him for such an incredible festival experience on Sunday. He had to leave earlier today, so mm-hmm. wanted to connect with him, and uh, I did ask him if he wants to be on a future episode of the show. He seemed interested, so listeners, keep your fingers and tentacles crossed. We're going to make that happen. Oh, yeah. Um, nice. The guy was great. Um, I sat in on his presentation uh, that was about his artwork, working with Guillermo del Toro and a few other things, um, and then his Antarctic adventures and preservation work. And the paintings and the photos he showed were amazing. Did you get a chance to see that? No, I didn't. Um, I think that was Saturday evening. Yeah, I was yeah. I was in watching from beyond. Okay. Um, you know, it, that's that's the only thing about this festival. You're gonna miss something you really want to see because you want to see something else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wanted to see more shorts this year. Didn't get to it. Yeah. Um, I saw a bunch, but just <laughs> not as many as I wanted to. You know, I wanted to see a couple of different things. Didn't get to it because some things. I mean. Brian and Gwen do a great job of scheduling. I mean, they really, really do, but there's just no way you can get everything you want to see going. You have to pick and choose, and, you know, sometimes you miss out on something, but there's always something just as good happening that you're watching. Yeah, it was something I was talking with Brenda about, actually, is that in previous years, um, you could plot a course to see everything once. And I don't know if that was by design or it just kind of happened that way. Um, Brenda actually wanted to sit down with me Thursday night to do that very thing because she used to help me with that because <laughs> she's much better at thinking that way than I am. When I told her it's impossible to do that, she's like, oh, that was my favorite part of the festival for you. I was like, well, I'll find other things to do, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I think that happened when they moved over um, and brought in the EOD Center yeah. uh, because they used to have the panels in one of the theaters. So you could actually see the shorts and the movies because they were only running in two theaters at the time. Now they're running in three, so it's just there's so much going on. There's so many movies. You just you you kill yourself trying to see them all. You can't. You'd be splitting yourself in two. And if you can do that, let me know because next year I want to. <laughs> that sounds messy. Um, so movies, I did not see very many um, because I spent a lot of time networking, hanging out with people, and doing panels. I got into the second half of Schwartz Block One. Um, I saw Ink, The Beast in the Cave. Um, the package and a few others. You saw a lot more though, but but of that shorts block, mm-hmm. um, the Beast in the Cave, I loved because it was a straight up adaptation, and it's I mean it's a nice treat to see that. You don't see that as often anymore with these things. So to have a straight up literal, damn near literal, tra- uh, adaptation of Lovecraft was great. Plus, you know, biased. Larry Gangreen, <laughs> Larry Doctor Gangreen Underwood wrote it, so uh, you know, biased. It was. A gr- it w- it was gr- it was good. I mean, you know, like you said, it was a straight-up adaptation. It was, sh- it was short, but it was long enough to get the mm-hmm. the story in without going too far. And um, whoever played the uh, whoever played the person lost in the cave did a great job of pretending he was in pitch black because, <laughs> you know, he couldn't be because we wouldn't be able to see him. Right. So he did a he did a wonderful job. I thought it was really well done. Um, Ink kind of was a creepy one. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was the package, which had the whole theater in stitches at the end, which 
That was good. Yeah, yeah. If they ever show, if that ever shows up on YouTube, folks, just watch it. It's well worth the three, four minutes. So with the shorts, you sometimes have a good mix: drama and humor. Mm-hmm. And the humor ones are usually harder to sell. And I think the package nailed it. I don't want to say much more because it will spoil the package, and I don't want to spoil the package no, for anybody. No. Now, uh, any other shorts stand out for you? That I mean, I didn't see very many others. Um. I did see the um, the oh, the uh, forty four minute um, version of From Beyond, oh, yeah. which which was really quite good. Um, it's a more literal telling of the story than uh, Stuart Gordon's version. Um, it did feel like um, it 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 kind of dragged out a little bit, but it still was really good. You know, I mean, Gordon told. From beyond in ten minutes, pretty much. Um, this one was forty-four. Um, there were a few scenes where it's like, um, you know, you can just get moving here. We get the idea, but it was it was really a good effort. Um, man, nothing else. Oh, <laughs> there's so many. Um, I'd have to look at my notes. Um, nothing else really really jumped out. Um, there were there were some really good ones. Um, as always, Lovecraft Under the Gun was amazing. Yeah, how'd that turn out? Um, there were four people, uh, uh, I'm sorry, four teams this year. I think there was only three last year. And, I mean, they run the gambit from just straight-up filming to... there was there, There's one group that every year does stop motion. It, so, so for listeners who don't know, uh, Lovecraft Under the Gun, it's similar to like a 48-hour film festival. Or 72. Whatever. But in this, they get 72 hours. Uh, are they given a topic or are they just told to go? They're not given a topic, but what they have to do is they have to, um, the, the, the organizers pick out a quote from Lovecraft that they have to use out of his story. And there's a prop that they have to use. And so that's part of what you're judging it on. You know, I mean, did they use the quote really well? Did they use the, you know, prop really well? And then of course, you know, there's how good the script was, how good it was, you know, put together. I mean, and everything was great. You know, I mean, it was it was really, really... It's amazing what these people can do in 72 hours. I mean, um, and probably a lot of caffeine and no sleep. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the one we... Well, not the only reason, but that'd be the biggest thing for me is I wouldn't want to participate because I'd miss the festival. I'd be out making a movie instead, which I guess would be fun, but I, I, I wouldn't want to miss this. Oh, no, 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 no. They're not making it during the festival. Oh, okay. Okay, I misunderstood. Um, yeah, they. I think they, they're given the information like, uh, I don't know, three weeks in advance oh. or something. So they're doing it um, They're doing it over a different weekend. Okay, Because, okay. so, I mean, there's no way they could edit and have it ready in 72 hours if they, if when the festivals, um, you know, when they're doing the films at one o'clock, there's just <laughs> no. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's not that they miss the festival. It's just that they miss a lot of sleep during it, <laughs> during the, during the competition, I should say. You ended up, um, filling in, pitching in and mm. jumping up on the main stage to moderate the Q and a for badass monster killer. How'd that go? How'd the movie go? The movie was fun. I'm, um, you, you, they, um, it, it's basically a movie pretty much shot on green screen. Um, but they have so, I mean, all of the neon signs for everything in this city is just, you know, full of references. They have a Chinese restaurant owned by Lo Pan, you know, they've, <laughs> they've got, um, you know, buy or Crom swords or something. And, and my favorite was Matango. I don't remember what 
it was, but I'm like, oh, look, there's Matango. Holy cow. Um, fun movie. Enjoyable. Um, and getting up on main stage was really a thrill. And the people, especially the director, I'm spacing on his name. It's been a long weekend. Sorry, folks. Um, he, uh, everybody on the stage pretty much was really animated, really loving the, to talk to, to, uh, you know, the audience and stuff. And, and then, um, I mentioned that I saw him at Tango and he was like, Oh my God, someone got it. You know? So that was kind of cool too. Now I saw the first 20 minutes of the animated feature. You saw the whole thing. It was a Howard Lovecraft or HP Lovecraft in the frozen kingdom. Howard Lovecraft. Howard yeah. Lovecraft. I, I didn't stick around. I, I found the animation to be kind of stiff and kind of, I just didn't like the animation, and I thought the story was a little too Chronicles of Narnia for Lovecraft. Um, what were your thoughts? It's a kids' movie. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I, I just have to say that. I mean, it's interesting to see all the references that they used, but you know, there's the little—I wouldn't say minions, but as in you know, the little I like yellow food. Yeah. <laughs> That, I like fruit. That that was those, those were the deep ones. You know, uh, the minions. You know, they're these little. They're not the minions from Despicable yeah, Me yeah. or anything. But you know, they're kind of the same sort of thing. You know, it's definitely a kids' movie, and the animation was not of a quality you'd see in a first run movie. You know, let's let's be honest. You know, I mean, it. There's no weight to the characters. Yes. There's no footprints in the snow. It, it's. But you know, I mean, as a kids' movie, it probably would be okay. One thing that I did appreciate, and maybe I'm reaching here, mm-hmm. uh, they at the beginning of the movie, the characters go visit Lovecraft's father in the insane asylum. I could swear they modeled him after Edgar Allan Poe. I thought the same okay. thing. Okay, <laughs> yeah. which makes sense if people know Lovecraft, he idolized Poe, so that makes perfect sense, and I appreciated that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, they got some good voice talent. Ron Perlman plays a Shoggoth. Um, I think I. Oh, God, I forget who played the doctor. I think that was Christopher Plummer? Oh. I think. I don't know. But he's in that movie, too. You know, they have some really, they had some really good voice talent. And it started out really kind of interesting. But once Howard got into the other world realm, it just kind of like, oh, this is a kiddie adventure. You know, I mean, I'll sit through it. What the heck? But, <laughs> but it was, it, you know, if you got kids... And you want to introduce them to Lovecraft, this is a great way to start. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think there are a lot of really good movies this weekend. I'm hearing great things about a lot of them. Um, Like I said, I only saw the shorts, and I missed the one short that I really wanted to see, Boris in the Forest, uh, which has a Karloff thing in it. So if any listeners out there have an in with the people who made Boris in the Forest, send them my way, because I'd love to see it (laughs) and talk about it here on the show. Uh, Panel-wise... Well, you guys heard the panel that Chris and I did with Sean Branny and Ken Height, and I thought that went really well. Any any final thoughts on that one, other than when we slapped ourselves in the forehead over coffee and said we should have brought up Matongo? Yeah, I know that was a bit, that's about it. I mean, <laughs> it was it was a great panel. Some people brought up some really interesting ideas that I'm like, oh man, that, that why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I sat in on a few other panels here and there. You didn't do very many, did you? Um, no, actually, I really didn't. Um, I, I did start watching some of the the um, Pikmin's model competition, but then I was drawn over to some other stuff. Um, yeah, there, it, I don't know. I just I wanted to do more shorts, but the theaters started filling up way too soon before I got there at times, and 
Yeah, well, next year. That's why I miss Boris in the Forest. It was full, standing room only, and the Hollywood is really enforcing fire code, and rightly so. Yeah. You guys and gals might have just heard a corn or a corn, a car horn. <laughs> a corn? It's Sunday, man. Uh, a car it's... horn. It's because Chris and I are standing outside the EOD, the Esoteric Order of Dagon Lodge, which um, normally is what? Some sort of senior center or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we're in a parking lot. So <laughs> that, that's the ambiance that you're getting here. <laughs> it's the only dry place we could find where we wouldn't be uh, picking up all sorts of other noises <laughs> aside from a car corn. <laughs> And there it is again. You know, the other the other place we could have recorded is down the hallway near the ladies' bathroom, but that just would have been weird. Uh, that yeah, I somehow the two of us standing by a, with a with a rec- no no <laughs> don't. <laughs> All right, so this episode is going to go out um, about a week and a half removed from the festival. Um, we, we still have a few things we're going to do. Chris is going to sit in on the closing ceremonies. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, but uh, I've had a blast. Any any closing thoughts on the festival? I can't wait for next year. <laughs> I'm beat. I'm tired. I have to be at work at 630 tomorrow morning. I don't care. I want it to be October again now. So the next year's festival is going on. It's it's always so much fun. And it's so much fun talking with you and everybody else here. It's, yeah, no, wonderful weekend. If you're ever in Portland over the, you know, when it's happening, don't do yourself a favor. At least come one day. It's It's wonderful. Chris nailed it, man. I mean, it's, it's an incredible time at the Hollywood the Lovecraft Film Festival. I wouldn't miss it for anything. No, um, I wouldn't either. It's just an incredible time. Everybody just wants to talk Lovecraft. And this year, everybody wanted to talk Classic Monsters with me, which made me very happy. Um, you know, to find that, inter- like I said in my introduction to the aspects, if you find an in- intersection between Lovecraft and Classic Monsters, I'm there. And I'm there all day long. Unfortunately, we can't be here all day long. we got to wrap up. Um, Chris has got the real life to get back to. I got to go to work at seven thirty in the morning tomorrow, <laughs> uh, and then I'm going to be back, back here to see Phantasm Ravager, which Scott Morris and I will talk about eventually in the future. Mm-hmm. So that'll be coming. Um, why don't we wrap this up? Okay, yeah, I I, I, I feel your pain about coming back because I'm doing it. I figured it out in eight days. I'm here six of them. <laughs> it's, I, I I need to rent a cot at the Hollywood during during the Halloween season. Seriously, Hollywood, get on that. So here's a business opportunity that we should, a business thing we should do, is we should rent out one of these empty storefronts out here and set up like a little micro Lovecraft hotel for for people who don't want to go home. There you go. Perfect. We'll start a Kickstarter. Look for that. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Chris. Oh, thank you. Always fun talking monsters and Lovecraft with you. Seven young people shipwrecked on a mysterious island. The island was deserted. Not even birds or animals dared to come here. What did they find? Seaweed, fish, and turtle eggs. Anything we can eat, as well as snakes and lizards. Just let me finish. There's a lot of grass growing around here. You can eat the roots. You can eat the roots of a lot of plants here. Never thought of that, did you? They were driven to the edge of starvation. Food was scarce, and they were forbidden to eat the mushrooms that grew on the island. Fear and hunger turned them against each other. (gasps) 
you. But Tango will help me live. I haven't been hungry since I left the ship. Mamie. Oh, help me. Help me. Please. Can't we eat the mushrooms now? That would really be the end of us. Akiko! monster. Can they escape the dreaded Matongo? You'll find out when you see Matongo! Hey, before we get any letters, yes, I realized after the fact, Matongo's in color, man. It wouldn't have been irrelevant to the black and white conversation, although we probably could have snuck it in if we wanted to. We did mention the third Quatermass film. Anyway, I had a blast at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. This is the event. I, I know I say it every year. I know I lay it on thick, but it's not an exaggeration. I love it. If there wasn't the Lovecraft Film Festival, man, my October would be somewhat hollow. It wouldn't be Halloween. It'd be Halloween. That was a terrible joke. Anyway, big thanks to Brian and Gwen Callahan for making this festival happen the way that it does. It's amazing. Thank you to Andrew Migliori for starting the festival way back in the day. And to everybody who attends the festival, thank you for being part of my experience and just joining me in the dark to talk about Lovecraftian and Cthulian tentacular goodness. <laughs> it was awesome. I'm getting carried away. Anyway, the Lovecraft Film Festival, I'm hoping it'll happen again next year. There haven't been any official announcements, at least none that I've heard, but I can't imagine it's not going to happen again next year. And I hope to be involved, either as a panelist, presenting movies, whatever. Stay tuned, because I'll mention it here as soon as I hear anything. And, of course, you can always check out the festival on Facebook or go to hplfilmfestivalpdx.com. Coming up in the very near future on Monster Kid Radio. Okay, this is the big one. This is huge. The Joy Cinema, Tigard, Oregon. It's in Portland, Oregon area. You can get there real easy. Parking's great. The popcorn's good. The screen is big. The staff are friendly. And the movies are monstrous. October 29th, the last Saturday of the month, the last Saturday before Halloween, Scarathon 2016 at the Joy Cinema. Okay, we got five movies. You ready for this? Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Yeah. King Kong versus Godzilla. Oh, yeah. The Evil Dead. The original Evil Dead. Blackula and Count Yorga Vampire. Wow. Okay. Gets even better. We're going to have prizes. I don't know if we're going to do a trivia thing or what, but there are going to be prizes at the event. Still working out all the details on that. And I'm going to be hosting the entire thing. Five movies. Going to be there for at least nine, ten hours that day. Just taking in the Halloween goodness. It's going to be a blast. And I hope to see you there. 
Go to thejoycinema.com for more information or look up the Joy Cinema on Facebook and let them know that you heard about the show here at Monster Kid Radio. And maybe I'll see you at Scarathon 2016. The very next day, assuming I get enough sleep between the end of Scarathon 2016 and Sunday night, I'm going to the Northwest Film Center in Portland to see the Vincent Price film Theater of Blood. All right, we're going to crash that one. That's a Monster Kid Radio crash. So for new listeners or for people who don't know, a Monster Kid Radio crash, it's not an official event, and it's not as vandalous as it sounds. It's just us getting together to go see the movie together. I'll bring my recorder. I'd love to record with you before the show, talk about the show afterwards. It's just an opportunity to get together with your fellow Monster Kids and Monster Kid Radio listeners and have a good time. I have created an event page for this on Facebook, or you can just go to nwfilm.org for more information about that screening. And I think on Halloween Day itself, I'm taking the day off from work like I typically do, and I'm going to sit around and watch nothing but monster movies all day, and I'm going to love it. I will be online. I'll have Facebook up, and I'll start playing with like some Facebook Live things or something. I'm not entirely sure what. Stay tuned, because I'll talk about it more in depth in the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. The next episode of Monster Kid Radio, as of right now, I am planning to talk about the movie Monster on the Campus from 1958, directed by my boy, Jack Arnold. I say that if you were injected with this, you'd revert to a primitive anthropoid, physically as well as mentally. One scientist dared investigate the incredible phenomena. Our pet dog reverted to an antediluvian wolf. Look at those teeth. That dog is a throwback. Our simple dragonfly had become a winged monster of a species extinct for millions of years. Now, before your very eyes, see a man revert to a half-human anthropoid from the dawn of creation. A monster leaving behind a trail of death and destruction. Oh, it's impossible. Nobody's got a footprint like that. Rest when I find the killer. That's not your responsibility. That belongs to the police. Madam, I know what I'm doing. Even he did not suspect the incredible truth. Neither did the police, nor the girl coming to keep a lover's rendezvous. <laughs> We're going to have somebody brand new on the show. He's never been on an episode of Monster Kid Radio, but he's been listening to the show for a long time, and he's a fellow podcaster. He's the man behind the Between Light and Shadow Twilight Zone podcast. His name's Craig Beam. You and I are going to talk about Monster on the Campus next week. Stay tuned for that. And I'm excited for what the rest of the month has in store, but I'm feeling a little peckish, so I'm going to go make myself a bowl of Frankenberry Right after I remind you that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Space Horror. That belongs to the Springfield, Illinois band, The Suction Cups. You can find them at thesuctioncups.bandcamp.com or you can find them on Facebook. And check this out. If you're in the Springfield area on October 22nd, that's this upcoming weekend. 
They're playing a Halloween show at the Black Sheep Cafe. And I've also heard that they're going to be putting out what they're calling a short yet spooky soundscape for free on their Bandcamp page sometime before Halloween. So go check them out and let them know that you heard about them here on MKR. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 